Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Evie Strauss, and thank you for listening. Andrew Farah, who is Chief of Psychiatry at the High Point Regional Health System in North Carolina, has over the last many years spent time and written about his efforts to understand why some depressions are so treatment-resistant. One of the approaches to correcting these clinical changes involves homocysteine, and he generously joins us today to explain this. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. When this notion began to appear, shall we say several years ago, the cynic's voices were considerable, and even with the FDA approval of medicines to address this condition, there was still doubt. But the focus has changed as many physicians, myself included, are reporting good clinical responses based on treatments understanding the role of homocysteine in depression. So let's begin, giving us a brief history of the concept and what is homocysteine? A great starting point, and, and you're right, you know, the homocysteine theory of depression, when we first started talking about it, people didn't understand it. We weren't trying to negate any other theory. In fact, the beautiful thing about the homocysteine theory is it actually unifies all of the other existing theories. It's a way of accounting for the monoamine hypothesis, or the inflammatory hypothesis, or even the neuroendocrine hypothesis. It's a way to actually not contradict any other theory of depression, but unite it. Now, homocysteine is an amino acid. It's not a dietary amino acid, but it's one that we synthesize. In the diet, we get methionine, and methionine is converted to homocysteine. And the problem with homocysteine is, yes, it's an amino acid, but it's a toxic amino acid, and it spells toxic DNA to vasculature. In fact, it not only damages DNA, but it impairs the DNA's ability to repair itself. And it's no wonder that patients with high homocysteine have vascular disease, at risk for stroke, dementia, the Alzheimer's type, vascular dementia, Parkinson's, and of course, any neurodegenerative process. You can see homocysteine rearing its ugly head, and many neuropsychiatric conditions, such as with autism, and of course, depression. So it's important to break down homocysteine to metabolize homocysteine, and it's important to eliminate its toxic burden. But when we also go through the homocysteine cycle and metabolize homocysteine, four things happen, and, and this is a simply, simple way of saying it. The first thing, of course, is eliminated toxicity. The second thing, the brain is making antioxidants through one pathway of elimination. The third thing is we methylate our DNA and our neurotransmitters and so forth. And finally, we actually allow for the proper synthesis, the optimal synthesis of monoamine, so that the homocysteine cycle is actually critical in making the optimal amount of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So you can see where it's also a form of oxidative stress. It's a form of, and that, of course, produces an inflammatory response. I know the inflammatory people want to talk chicken and egg, but I think that the reality is that homocysteine comes first and unifies the series. When I was a resident, when you were a resident, we were told that different genetically between somebody who has a stressful life event and now develops chronic depression or a stressful abuse as a child and now develops the borderline personality disorder or chronic anxiety or PTSD, the difference lies in that serotonin transporter. And that was a very sexy explanation because all of our drugs at that time worked just blocking the uptake of that serotonin transporter. But we learned, you know, after 12, 13 years of research that that was a dead end. But what appears that genetic risk of depression is actually the coenzymes necessary for metabolizing homocysteine, the enzymes necessary for metabolizing homocysteine and making monoamine. Those are the genetic differences in one patient that goes through a stressful event and it has a suboptimal serotonin. 
somebody who simply just can't make enough serotonin at baseline. I can elaborate on those coenzymes and, and how we can address that treatment further. It seems that this is the first time that we can actually cause or nudge or move the cells to manufacture the neurotransmitters that all of the traditional antidepressants were merely recycling. Is, is that a fair notion? That's an accurate statement, and it's a real paradigm shift, and I think that we're, we're at the beginning of something future, because ever since imipramine was synthesized, right, and ever since the first tricyclic was made, we're talking, going back to the Eisenhower administration, right, we've been blocking the replic of monoamine. Now, there's nothing in that antidepressant that makes the brain manufacture more serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. In fact, you know, we've known for years, there are many patients that get on an antidepressant, and as soon as they stop it, the depression comes back, and they say, well, I don't have anything to be depressed about. But what's happened is the antidepressant has really tricked the cell. It's both, it blocked the uptake of serotonin, therefore stimulated the negative feedback loop and shut down the release of serotonin. The antidepressant itself has tricked that neuron into decreasing the amount of serotonin synthesized and released, and therefore the antidepressant sort of induced the state of artificial depression, and so when you pull the rug out from under somebody by tapering off the antidepressants, they're even more depressed than they were before. There's nothing in those drugs that makes the brain make more serotonin, but for the first time, we can address the root cause of depression. We know those genetic defects that led to suboptimal monoamine production, and we can give the brain the raw material that is conditioning in many cases for a lifetime. I mean, there are many patients that tell me, well, I was depressed when I was a child. You know, I had one gentleman, a very a professional gentleman, come to me and say, he thought it was unusual. He said, most people don't think about suicide every day. And I said, nope, most of us don't sit around plotting our demise every day. And he, and he said, ever since I was a kid, I've been thinking about that. And he just thought that was the way that most people were, you know, now address that root cause, you know. So let's bring in the other character in the play, and that's yeah. L-methylfolate. People right. are amazed that the folic acid, a B vitamin, seems to be so critical in here. So I would like you, if you would, please, walk us through how folic acid is important here and why people just can't go and take a bunch of folic acid from, you know, a drugstore. That's a great question. We certainly know that 40% of depressed individuals are low in folate. We know that MTHFR, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, which is the enzyme that is the last step in folate metabolism, is effective in the majority of depressed individuals. And so we've, we've known for a long time that that was a common polymorphism that led to depression, or was at least associated with depression. And I guess the best place to start, listeners, is that, you know, most of our patients think that they can just take over-the-counter B vitamins, and B vitamins are what they are, but they don't realize that the B vitamins have to be metabolized now to the active coenzyme form. And there's as many as sometimes four or five enzymatic steps to go from dihydrofolate in the diet or folic acid all the way down to L-methylfolate, which is the coenzyme necessary for homocysteine reduction and monoamine production. So folate is the most important one. It's for the quarterback that's seen because it's very important in reducing homocysteine, providing methyl donation, but also tyrosine hydroxylase and tryptophan hydroxylase, they require something called CH4, tetrahydrobiopterin, so that's their coenzyme. To make that coenzyme, you need L-methylfolate, and in fact, if you're still deficient, in that coenzyme, L-methylfolate can stand in for and act like that coenzyme. We see that the folate and reduced folate in particular is so, so critical. But also the other B vitamins are critical too. There's a lot to say about that. For example, if all of the depressed patients have
had was MCHFR, then patients would all respond to reduced folate, and the reality is they don't. So MCHFR is the most common and certainly the most well-known, the most commonly studied. When that patient with depression is in front of us, sure, they may have MCHFR, but they also may have a B12, or they may have a B3, or they may have a, a thionine synthase polymorphism, or tyrosine hydroxylase polymorphism. There are all sorts of minor genetic variants where enzymes are suboptimal in their production and activity, and as a result, coenzymes are suboptimal in their amount. And so we have to account for all of them, not just one. What's a polymorphism? Explain it. Yeah, a polymorphism is not always a mutation. Maybe just a subtle one base pair substitution, or it's just a subtle genetic variant that means that now that enzyme is less functional than it should be. Maybe 70% is effective or 20% is effective as far as doing its job. And that's why patients with MCHFR polymorphism, and they, oh, there were 40 different variants of that enzyme, but the two most common expressions actually will, in fact, lead to suboptimal serotonin production. So we can throw that term polymorphism out just to say, yes, there's a genetic variant out there that has led to a less functional enzyme. Now, listeners may be a little confused because I've used interchangeably the polymorphism for those that metabolize the vitamins that are going to act as coenzymes and cofactors in the homocysteine cycle and in other steps of monoamine production. But also I've used it for those enzymes themselves, such as methionine synthase or tyrosine hydroxylase. But the important thing is, let's say your B vitamins are fine and their metabolism is fine, but it's, there's something wrong with tryptophan hydroxylase. So to get the, from tryptophan to serotonin is problematic because of that enzyme. You can coax normal activity out of a defective enzyme by giving above optimal levels of the coenzyme. So that's why the helmopopole and, and intravage for it actually helps tyrosine hydroxylase and tryptophan hydroxylase do their job. That's a subtle point, but an important one. We are so used to thinking about the serotonin deficiency, norepinephrine deficiency, dopamine deficiency, but we don't talk enough about what's upstream from that deficiency. And now we're talking about some tools to actually deal with the production. I know for a long time we always talked about dopamine being the problematic issue in schizophrenia, but we're now knowing that it's as glutamate issues, higher back upstream type material. And that's what you're talking about here. Yes, exactly. More to your point, too, you know, 15% of uh, marijuana users who develop schizophrenia, I mean, that's uh, in NPA receptors, right? Glutamate activity and so forth is not so much as dopamine, it's downstream from dopamine. So you're absolutely right. This, this is a beautiful concept because all our drugs do is sit on receptors and cause changes inside of cells. And those are, so what's kind of a black box, which for a long time in the world of antidepressants, we have just conflated initial site of activity with full mechanism of action. And they're not the same thing. The initial site of activity just kind of tells you what side effects you're going to have. But what happens as the signaling inside the cell leads off into theory that nobody really can check at this point of our science. We're going even farther back and saying, let's give the brain the raw material conditioning and give adequate amounts of, uh, allow it to make adequate amounts of serotonin and norepinephrine and so forth. In our study, nobody, when we gave this compound that we're going to talk about, nobody got manic, no one got hypomanic, nobody had sexual side effects, nobody had weight gain. So there's a difference between sitting on a receptor and causing changes and giving the brain raw material conditioning. Two different things. When does someone reach the point they're having a depression they talk to their doctor when do they look at what is commonly called folate 
supplementation. The formulations of L-methylfolate, different companies make it, but there are some generics. There's always the question about the quality of the generics, but just conceptually, when should someone start L-methylfolate supplementation? It's a great point. And the APA said in their last statement regarding the, the guidelines on treatment of major depression that folate therapies are low risk, the opportunity to augment antidepressants. And so for a long time, people have thought of these agents as just augmentation strategies. We talk about our study where we use cluster B vitamins as monotherapy. But to me, I think they should be first line, front line therapy because they're just infinitely safer. You know, we don't have the suicide risk, we don't have the weight gain, we don't have any of the risks associated with antidepressants. And to me, it's the best place to start because, again, if the platform of giving the brain the raw material it's consisting, address that genetic root cause of depression, and if that doesn't work, I'm happy to add the antidepressants to it rather than the other way around. And you're right, the landscape, everybody's heard of the different market in folates, and then there's a lot of generic out there. The prescription L-methylfolates were a wonderful start. They were a great start, and I would favor them. It turns out for the majority of our patients, it's that six-foot touch on the go three feet, because the majority of patients don't just have MTHFR polymorphism, right? So if that's all they had, it would work. So that's why you, you get a response from those agents in a very small percentage of people. That's the exact percentage that only have MTHFR. Well, we've learned is we see that as a common marker in depression, but yet usually represents a cluster of sort of combination of polymorphisms that patients has in front of you. So their vitamin issues and metabolism and their enzyme issues may be B9, folate, B3, and tyrosine hydroxylase, and methionine synthase as well. So you don't know just by looking at them, and we can't test for that. And the other really interesting point, you did not have to have polymorphism to respond to this strategy. But just like our patients who had normal thyroid function, but we gave them a thyroid booster and their depression was in remission, just in that sort of spirit of things, you can have perfectly fine levels of B12 folate and homocysteine in the periphery, but still respond to this strategy. And that also brings up the point that your vitamin levels and your vitamin metabolism and your homocysteine can all look fine in the periphery, but it may be a completely different story across the blood-brain barrier. So you can have normal homocysteine in the periphery, but still be problematic in the central nervous system. Same thing with folate. Would someone need to be on these medications forever? And it raises the question because traditionally, if someone has their first depression, the rule of thumb was that you kept them on the antidepressant for roughly a year. If there was a serious suicide attempt or if it was a particularly nasty depression, you would keep them on it for a longer period of time. There are even some suggestions where people would be advised to stay on the antidepressants forever. But if it's a folate or a metabolic phenomena, Again, more upstream, how do we advise people? Do you stay on the uh, L-methylfolate forever? There are a handful of people that use it as acute depression therapy, and they're fine, and they want to go off it, and they go off it, and they're okay. But for the majority of people, you're right, you're dealing with a genetic issue that's been lifelong and will, will be lifelong. And some of them will tell you they never felt better. The other key thing is that if there's no better neural protection than having good antioxidant production across the blood-brain barrier and lowering homocysteine. If you think about, you know, why does one person, what is the mechanism of dementia? Why do cells die before they should? And, and the two main reasons this brain cells die are the insult of homocysteine, high homocysteine, which is pre-programming, actually, the, the DNA for early cell death, and oxidative 